With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Good evening, everybody. It is Wednesday, September the 23rd, 2015. And we're here again tonight with Bob Schaefer, who's going to talk to us about foreclosure. My name is Tad. I'm your host. And this, these calls are uh, put on uh, by youhavetheright.com. Uh, so when you get a chance, uh, go to youhavetheright.com, check it out, check out some of our services. Uh, this call and many other calls uh, will be archived and indexed by subject. For those that are wanting to learn uh, in a more expedited manner, so be sure to check out youhavetheright.com. A uh, little housekeeping, if you got any background noise or if you're on a speakerphone, hit star six to mute out, please. Okay. So, I think with that said, Bob, welcome and take it away. Thanks very much, Tad. I appreciate your your um, way of uh, reaching, reaching people with this this internet program that you have here. Sure. Um, what we're going to be talking about tonight is how to set up the opposition, uh, which would be those people who are going to foreclose, <clears throat> and um, use what they did or didn't do, what they failed, refused, or neglected to do against them. In other words, there'll come a there'll come a time when they're gonna say, "Well, you you borrowed some money, didn't you? Did you make payments for a while? Yes. Did you uh, stop making payments?" And they're gonna try to prove that you you're evil, bad person. A lot of people got sucked into some bad loans, and also they 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 started to default due to loss of jobs or loss of health. There's all kinds of reasons. And we have learned how to take advantage of their mistakes, and it's no longer what did did we do or fail to do. It's what did they do or what did they fail to do. So what we've learned to do is to set them up um, using their law. Now, people come to me, and I, I've been doing this for 36 years, um, I went into business first in 1959 as a contractor. So I, I've been a contractor for 56 years. I, in fact, I just finished two big jobs out in Palm Springs today. I'm still a contractor. I still have people that work for me in my contractor business. But 36 years ago, I, start, I got into uh, basic American land law, and I learned about the land patents, and I learned about I became a loan officer and uh, I've had a, <laughs> a very interesting two careers. 
uh, been a para- uh, unlicensed paralegal for 36 years. I was a licensed contractor for 56 years. Well, I didn't have the license that whole time, but I, I did maintain four California state contractors license classifications for many years. And then I, when I started studying law, I realized that I had a right to contract. I didn't need the government privilege to contract. And so I've learned how to do that. In fact, I have some new products that I'm going to be selling, and I'll be doing a seminar probably before the end of the year on how the people can go into business for themselves. Because people need jobs all over this country, and uh, I can teach them how to go into business for themselves without a license and using their law against them and do good work, do the very best. I mean, my my business did over 8,000 roofs, and so I can teach people how to be a roofer and do it right. Anyway, hey, so Bob, that sounds two, like two, that sounds two, like we should we should do make that a webinar. Yeah, we can maybe do that. <clears throat> um, I have a I have put together two different products that produce insulation value. R five insulations per coat. So if you paint the inside of your house with two coats and the outside of your house, you've got R20 insulation just in the paint. And it's fireproof. It's not fire retardant. And it has a, a long age. They start, they have accelerated uh, aging, and they stopped uh, at 200 years. <laughs> it was still good with, with that uh, type of testing. Anyway, uh, so it was 38 years, 36 years ago that I started uh, helping people with the legal problems. Now, one of the things that they'll teach you when you go to uh, real estate school is that this, and this is an honest statement, and that is our, our class will not teach you how to do real estate. It will teach you how to pass the test, and then you will learn by doing. And that's why they say doctors and lawyers practice, practice medicine or practice law. You learn by doing. And <clears throat> there's a lot of people in this world that are out there offering help that don't know what they're doing. And uh, I stopped working all over California. Uh, at one time, I had a crew of 28. And we worked from Redding, California to San Diego and from the ocean to uh, Mojave Valley, Arizona, <clears throat> and uh, everywhere in between. And um, that gives you a lot of experience. Well, when, now when people call me from a long distance, I don't do that anymore. And they ask me my advice, and this is my advice, and it's, it's, it's good for everybody listening here. When you're in an area and you need some help and you don't know who to call, Longevity says a lot. That's why I, I have, I'm happy to tell 56 years of being a contractor and 36 years of being a, a paralegal um, because there's a lot of new people come along. They, they, don't, they have a good idea, but they have a lot of bad information, and they, they spread it around. People go to jail. I know people that are in jail today for bad information they got at seminars. Uh, one reason that I'm no longer associated with uh, people in the past is uh, I, I know of three people who went to jail for advice that was given without my consent at my seminar. And um, so whatever you do, you do not want to um, accept the deeds. That was, that was the deal. 
you have to accept the date. No, you don't want to accept the date. It's not a good date anyway. So why would you want to accept it? <laughs> anyway, um, so what I tell people, if you're in long distance away from me and I can't, I can't help you, is look for longevity. Go in the phone book, look for full-page ads or big ads of somebody that's been in business for 30 to 50, 60 years because that means they are successful and you need to pay for a higher price for somebody that's going to be successful. You can get somebody always to work for less, but a lot of times they're just not successful. So anyway, but I just, after all these years, I just recently, within the last few months, have been developing a system that I don't know why I didn't get it before, but, you know, it been come to you after a while. And so I, I like to win <clears throat> fast and, and as soon as possible at the administrative level, if at all possible. If it has to go to judicial, that's okay. I'm ready. But what we do, what I've developed, are documents that when, when you send these documents to the opposition, <clears throat> they know that somebody did their homework and that they're being set up. And uh, there are some people, one man, <clears throat> um, I've got to tell this story because there's an up, update to it. One man, uh, his, his wife filed bankruptcy against the lender on their home, a very expensive home. And uh, she didn't know anything about the law like most of these people. And so she had this attorney, and there came a day when he said to her, you know, the next time we go into court, I just have to tell you, you're going to lose your house. So she told her husband, and he said, well, I heard about this guy in Southern California that seems to be able to help a lot of people in these situations. Um, and so he paid, paid the donation and, and got, got my document. It was... Uh, at the same proceeding to the bankruptcy court. And he, uh, she filed it and gave, gave a copy to the attorney. He looked at it. He said, oh, this is terrible. I'm not going to embarrass myself. You're on your own. And it just freaked her out because she didn't want to be on her own. She said, like most people, I need somebody to stand beside me. Her husband says, honey, I read this document. It looks pretty awesome to me. I don't see how they can respond to us. And um, you can lose your house without him standing beside you. So it can't get any worse. So relax. So she did. She went into court, and they put her last. When they put you last, that's a really good sign because they don't want the other people to see somebody have some success. Well, she didn't know that. She just knew she was last. And uh, she saw nine people lose their house with their attorney standing beside them. Nine people lost their house with their attorney. And then they called her, and she went up by herself. The attorney for the bank came up, and he he said, uh, you know, I just served this about 10 days ago, and I'm, I'm, I need to answer this. I want to answer it, but I'm going to need 90 days. Right there, she got 90 days more than these other people that lost their house with their attorney standing beside them. <clears throat> so she was pretty thrilled. And then I never heard anymore. And, you know, I tell people, I can't fix anything if I don't know about it. Why do you not communicate with me? So I didn't hear until about six months ago. 
the man called me up and he said, well, they're coming after us again. And I said, well, what happened <laughs> two years ago? He said, well, the judge eventually threw the case out, but this bank saw their problem and they just left us alone for two years, but now they're coming after us again. So I did another document for him, that's a quiet title action. People ask, well, what is a quiet title? A quiet title is where two people claim ownership of something and you want to quiet one in favor of the other. <clears throat> and so whoever sues first uh, is, is, is in a superior position. The other people are defending. So we sued the bank <clears throat> with a quiet title action, basically using the same document, the same argument in the adversary proceeding, but my adversary proceeding is a lot tighter now than it was two years ago. And now, and these people are in uh, San Jose, and I stopped, stopped in on my way to Washington because I was helping some people with a problem on the Columbia River. And, and so I stopped and visited and, and uh, helped him with some more procedure. And he's now telling me that the bank's attorney is call, calling him and asking him for more time. <laughs> We've got them running. They're looking over their shoulder, and we're right after them, and they know it. So I've taken these documents, and I have made them work in three different areas. First, I should back up and say that when people come to me, there's a number of of um, situations that they're they're in. Like some people are current with their their mortgage. They have a job, they have their health, they just realize that, wait, I funded my own loan. They, they monetized my signature. They have no skin in the game. They didn't loan me a dime. I gave them the money that they loaned me, and they, that's without full disclosure. And now they keep uh, upping my uh, interest rate, and it's getting harder and harder. So they want to do a quiet title action. Just, you know, without any problem or any stress on anybody, nobody's worried about a foreclosure and being evicted at that level. Then other people come to me and they say, you know, I've just lost my job and I, I can't keep making my payments. They want to play a title action. Then others come to me and they, like one man said, I know this is a little late. It's Friday afternoon. <laughs> And they're going to sell my house on the steps of the courthouse Monday at 2 o'clock. Can you help me? I kept him in his house for two years. Anyway, that's a, and that's, that's a, um, a, a, say, a proceeding to a bankruptcy. Then other people come to me and say, well, I lost my house two years ago. I'll be there too. I'm, I'm out of this. Uh, somebody else is in my house. That's another client title action. But they all have the same common thread. And that was the evils done by the lender. Now, when, when you went and got your loan, somebody said, we have money to loan. Come on down. Fill out this application. And so you, you do. <clears throat> and um, then they, they take that. They transfer your name, your upper and lowercase name, and they make an account in either their bank or some other bank. A lot of them have their own bank. 
with your name in uppercase name, in all uppercase letters. And that brings up another thing. I've got a subject because a lot of people don't realize this. We say uppercase for capital letters. That term comes from the printing industry where the typesetter had two shelves. The capital letters were in the uppercase and the the smaller letters were in the lowercase. And so he would pull the letters out to make his uh, his type, his, set his type. So anyway, they make a bank account with your name in capital letters or uppercase. The, uh, they don't tell you that they did that, and they usually bump it up from seven to ten times. Um, they don't deny that. So you go in and say, I need to borrow $200,000 to make a $2 million account, and they fund it with your application, just your application. And when they handed you the application, if it's several pages long, uh, it, they might have uh, 50 cents in ink and paper invested in that application. When you put your signature on it, that piece of paper becomes worth $2 million to them. And they consider it an asset. They don't tell you about it. And now they have this asset that they can fund your loan eventually. Now they say, well, we've got to check your credit because they, they want to get paid back some money they're loaning you. And they make it seem like they're loaning you their money. And so they check your credit, and the, the only thing they really are interested in is that signature. They want to know you are alive and breathing. Sit down here and sign this promissory note. Now, one of the paragraphs, it says something that we really like because we need it in the future. See, we like common law. They like civil law or equity law. There's one paragraph that says if there is a, an action at law or in equity, the prevailing party will have, have its um, cost paid by the loser. At law means common law. In law means common law. The 11th Amendment uses the word in law or equity. Your, your promissory note uses the word at law or equity. At law is common law. Common law is the only, only, only law system under the law of the land. A lot of people don't realize that that's in distinction to the law of the sea which all other laws are based on, civil law, equity law, Roman civil law, chancery law, maritime law, and the maritime jurisdiction. Those are all law of the sea, where the ship's captain can not only marry you, but he can bury you. He can make you walk the plank if you don't take that mask down because there's a storm coming, and that's called sending a message. Okay, we just ran this guy over the edge. How about you, sir? Are you going to take that? mask down or you're going to walk the plank. See, under the law of the sea, they have a lot more power. And that's what a lot of people love today. They just love the power of the law of the sea. The law of the sea was also known as the law of war, where the law of the land was called the law of peace. And until the year 1844 A.D., in America, the law of the land and the law of the sea met at the mean or average high tide mark on the coastline of America. And it's at the mean or average high tide mark all over the world. In other words, every country, every nation has its own common law. We've heard of British common law, 
but the uh, African common law and Zimbabwe common law, every every nation has its own common law, which is based on reason, logic, and common sense, and it shows through custom usage, practice, and procedure. It's unwritten law. In other words, this is the way we do it here. And it can be by an area. It can be by a large area or a small area. But in this, you know, in some countries, it's it's okay under their law of the land to eat their enemies. And, but it's not that's not what we do in this country. But it's okay there because that's their law of the land. So in 1844, Congress met and said we have to bring the law of the land inland. So those ship's captains can maintain control of his ship and his passengers and his crew and his freight to the end of the voyage. So they brought this commercial law. That's what it is. Law of the sea is commercial. They brought it inland. And then they started saying, this is really cool. Let's get all these people that are free and natural sovereign people to contract away their unalienable rights. Now, under American law of contracts, it has to be entered into knowingly, willingly, intentionally, freely, and voluntarily after full disclosure. See, they don't do this. After full disclosure of all obligations, duties, and responsibilities associated with that contract and with a valuable consideration of at least $1 in silver. And that's called valuable consideration. Now, until you have all those, you don't have a contract. It's not it's not a valid contract. And yet, there's a lot of people that are suffering from some people in the government thinking they have jurisdiction over them. For instance, at the courthouse nearby here, you go over there, and there may be 200 people standing in line to go up and pay their, their traffic fines. When in reality, there may be 10 people that were drivers of motor vehicles and under the vehicle code. But through their ignorance of not only the people, but of the police, this little old grandma that was taking her kids to Sunday school, she, she stopped at the stop sign, but she stopped 18 inches over that white line. And some officer saw it. He said, all right, there's an $80 income. The courts now use as revenue for revenue. and it's unjust because that little old lady is not under the vehicle code. She's not under it because she doesn't, even though she might have a driver's license, which which would be a license that makes her commerce ready, she's not engaged in commerce. She's not working for a fair fee or rate. She's not hired. She's not on the job. Um, in California, we have California Vehicle Code 12,500A that says, all persons who drive a motor vehicle shall be licensed. I agree with that. I'm not a person. I don't drive or operate a motor vehicle. And Title 18, Section 31 defines a motor vehicle. And so I, I don't have a license, and I haven't had a license for 36 years. And I travel all over America, but I don't drive anywhere. Okay, so now what we how we set them up, is with a, this is the first document. Well, let me back up. There are even more documents before we get to these uh, affidavits, but the first thing you want to do is send the lender, and that's in any one of these stages. 
except for the last one. After, after you've lost your health, it doesn't. These these first two don't don't work. But the first two documents is a rescission. You res, you rescind your signature yeah. on that application, and then you send them a QWR letter. That's a qualified written request. We have developed through a lot of experience, through a lot of practicing, some awesome letters. And I get complimented all the time about these letters. And what we want in our setup, we want them to default. Because under the Uniform Commercial Code, a default means a discharge. So you see, by the time we get to court, if we ever get that far, that loan was discharged maybe four to six times because of their defaults and because of what they failed to do. So you want to send off those two things. And you also want to send off a series of four offers to pay. Uh, we, and this all has come to me over the years of practicing. I mean, I read a lot of case law, and they'll say, well, they threw this guy out because he didn't even make an offer to pay. Well, doggone, we're going to fix that. We're going to make an offer to pay. And the case law says you don't have to have a red cent to make an offer. You have to have the money when the offer is accepted. But they can't accept our offer because we use the law against them. We say, we don't want to know what you are will accept. We don't know. We don't want to know what you may take as a, as a tender of payment. We want to know what you are requiring as a tender of payment. Require. And then, you see, we use... Um, the Corning Chapter April 2, 1792 is the only American law that ever defined a dollar. Nothing else has ever defined a dollar. The Corning Act of 1965 even specifically said this does not change the definition of a dollar. It only brought in clad coins. And it, it, it uh, cheated us even more. It took the redeemability away from silver certificates. Now... In 1965, you could buy a dollar of silver or a silver dollar for one silver certificate. Then they took that away from us. So we could still buy a silver dollar with a Federal Reserve note. Um, we, we call those frauds. Uh, that's an acronym for Federal Reserve Accounting Unit Device or frauds. Anyway, so we can buy silver with frauds, and they, they, they allow that. And so that's what some people, how some people invest. Now, the, uh, today it takes about 30 to 1. Now, how that has even affected the judges. For instance, a, a federal judge, it says in, in the federal constitution that his pay shall not be diminished. Well, in 1965, they were earning about forty to fifty thousand dollars a year. Now it's a little over two hundred thousand dollars a year. That's four times, not thirty times. So you see, they're supporting a system that has diminished their own pay. They're not earning what they should pay. Uh, I remember my grandfather was a barber, and his barber shop was on the road back from Las Vegas, and back in the 50s. He would come in by a haircut and pay him in silver dollars, and his his price is two bucks, and so that was two silver dollars. 
Well, oh. if you convert that now, it's 60. How many people pay $60 for a haircut today? That's the reason he could support my grandmother without her working is because people got paid in real money that had value, and they've cheated us. And what they do, the $200,000 that the, that the um, judge is earning today puts him up into a higher tax bracket, doesn't it? So he, he's, he's in the same boat as we are. And uh, a few years ago, 40 judges learned this, and they went and they sued, and they got, they got some uh, remedy for that. I was, just, uh, I was just shown that. I've got the case where that happened. <clears throat> anyway, so after you do those three, those three documents, the QWR letter, the letter of rescission, and the offers to pay, those are all, they all get defaulted and those are all discharges. Then we, and in, in there, we also point out that uh, the loan was securitized and you should get a securitization audit and that proves that they separated the promissory note from the deed of trust or the mortgage if they're in the, in the East. Um, See, in the East, they have judicial foreclosures. In the West, we have non-judicial foreclosures. Well, we know how to make the non-judicial foreclosure a judicial foreclosure. We don't have to just look the other way and get evicted. And so we do that with what I'm telling you here. We set them up. Now, well, another setup is, is called an affidavit of material facts. And in the affidavit of material facts, we have over a hundred material facts. We have to break it up into no, we have more than 120. We have to break it up into five documents of material facts because they can only go up to 25 per document. The first half of these documents goes into a lot of detail, and they're all alike. It, it talks about definitions. You means this, and I mean that, and this is the address. It's all very general. Then we get into the affidavit of material facts. Now, the beauty of an affidavit is that they had better respond or it's deemed, it, it's deemed uh, true and correct. It's similar to a, a discovery um, process called a request for admissions. When you send them a request for admissions after you have a court case going, they better answer the request for admissions because if they don't, then that's deemed admitted. Everything that you ask them to admit to is deemed admitted, and they can't unwind that. So we have two documents that they have to answer. Now, there's a lot of people, we send out stuff, and they'll say, well, they didn't even respond. Well, that's a good thing. That's the default. Um, and so we want them to not respond. But, we, but the law says they have to respond, and we go according to the law. Now, in, in this affidavit of material facts, we, we, ask, we, we make a statement that this is a fact, that uh, this happened. And then the next one, this, this next thing happened. And we go down through all the evil things that, that we know that they have done. And uh, they have the obligation now to come back and say, no, I didn't do that. And here is recorded admissible evidence that proves I didn't do that. Well, then the next one, they can't prove that one. So what we're doing is creating a record to show a judge in the future, if it goes that far, or a jury, why we need 
a, a quiet title action in our favor because they did all these and they admit to us. Now, if it goes right there, they should see that they better back off because just with the affidavit of facts. Now, when you file a lawsuit, if you have to file a lawsuit, let's say uh, it doesn't work. You don't want to ever say, well, that didn't work. That's just did work, but it didn't work uh, as fast as we expected. You never know what somebody else is going to do. People are always asking me, well, what are they going to do with this? And I tell them, I don't know. Read my lips. I don't know what somebody else is going to do ever. There could be a hundred different things. I just know what to do after I find out what they did. So we're, we're, we're never hanging out there not knowing what to do. And so if, it, if, if, it, if they schedule a sale and you've got to do a bankruptcy, you should do it a couple of days before, not the last minute. I've done it 15 minutes before the sale, and that's running too close, and it's probably fair. So you, you should do it about two days before so nobody's going to show up and drive up for hours to go steal your house. So then a few days after you file, the chap, we, we start out with a Chapter 7, and then in about three weeks, we convert it to a Chapter 13. That's the way to buy most time in the courtroom. But in about a week after you file the PK, then you file your adversary proceeding. And, but you can't do discovery yet until they give you a discovery schedule. But one thing you can do, which is like discovery, is do this affidavit of facts in support of the adversary proceeding. Same thing with the with the quiet title action in the in the regular court, not the BK court. It's the same document, but it's got a different title. It's a quiet title action, and not an adversary proceeding. So instead of waiting until they give the discovery schedule, we do the <clears throat> affidavit of material facts, five of them, which produce about 125 different facts that, they, that are just totally embarrassing for them, and there's no way around them. And that's why they want more time to respond. <clears throat> and we can do that before the discovery schedule is even, even given. Now, whenever the discovery schedule is given, we can take those same documents, those same five documents, and by a search and replace, we can take those, and within their minutes, make five more documents we take out it is an we take out the first uh words it is a material fact that and change that to admit that and the, what we want them to admit to is the same fact that we asked them earlier so now they have another problem it, you know, it's going to take a lot of hours and these are these are very material facts now, if it gets to the court trial, people say, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't, I'm not an attorney. But the judge, in a, in a, if you're a pro se, like we are, he has to maintain order and tell you what's next. Now, then you call the enemy and you put them up on the stand and you take the same documents that with a search and replace. We change, admit that to, we change that to, is it not a fact that? 
And then you ask them these same embarrassing questions that they can't answer. And they stammer and stutter, and they, well, I'm saying they do because we've never got that far yet, but we're ready for them. And then you ask the next, you know, you, you ask the president those questions, then you ask the treasurer that, and you ask the chief financial officer those same questions. Um, they're going to spend between two and $500,000 to see if you're right or wrong. And I tell them up front a lot of times, I'll just say, oh, you're willing to spend two to $500,000 to see if I'm right or wrong. I'm going to show you my hands. That's how how sure I am I'm going to win. Here's my affidavit of facts. Answer them. You better answer them. Or well-settled American law and jurisprudence says it's all just like we, we said that this is a fact that you didn't, you didn't say was wrong. So... <clears throat> What I, what I want to get across to you people tonight is how you set this up. Um, it's called the 4W Affidavit. <clears throat> the 4W is, is the who, what, where, and when of each incident. Now, this works for all kinds of court cases. This could be a criminal case. It could be any time you have a problem, you should be keeping copious notes. Because our minds uh, forget things in time. And if you have a computer, you can just plug in and that was something you forgot about right where it belongs. If you don't have a computer, do it on 5 by 7 uh, index cards so that you can shuffle them and put them in the right order. But, for instance, a who, what, where, and when would be similar to this. On uh, September 23, 2010, um, Officer and uh, Officer Smith knocked uh, on my front door and uh, at 1235 Main Street and uh, asked me to step outside. That's one little paragraph. It's got the four W's. Then the next one is the same thing. Or you could, you could add, uh, and I refuse to step outside. Well, then uh, the next paragraph, you might say uh, three minutes later, and you go through the same thing. They broke down the door and they they arrested me without a Fourth Amendment warrant. And so you see, what you're doing here is you're creating the whole story of what your lawsuit is about. Because you're going to take this before a judge that doesn't know you, the jury they don't know you, they don't know anything that happened to you. You've got to convince them of all the evils that you're bringing to them. The best way to do that is with a 4W affidavit. And that you want to start doing right away, or you can go back in history, look at your look at your paperwork. On this date, I signed an application for a loan. On this other date, I uh, signed a promissory note. On this date, uh, the loan was funded. The alleged loan was funded. I didn't realize that uh, I funded my own loan. On this, on this date, um, the lender sold my note to this loan servicer. Um, and then after you get the uh, <clears throat> securitization out of it, you can add more to it. On this date, um, my, my promissory note was made into a stock, and it went into a remic trust, and it's, it's, a, it's forever a stock. It's traded all over the world. They separated my promissory note from my deed of trust on my mortgage. Now, there's a carpenter case that we have. It's over 120 years old. It's never been set aside. 
they really hate it. In fact, some of the lower courts on the state today, they say it's archaic. Well, but by the time we get back up to the United States Supreme Court, if we go that far, they'll see it that way again because it basically says that they make void any securitization that that trustee uh, presented. Now, here's one thing a lot of people don't, don't understand that I, I want to get across to you. When you took title to your your land, <clears throat> you took the same title that was given to the original land patent owner, <clears throat> maybe 120 years old, because on that it says it's forever to his him, his heirs, or assigns forever. Every land patent has the word forever on it. <clears throat> Sometimes it's the last word on the page. I mean, I keep looking for that word, and there it is, finally. Now, you aren't assigned, but when you assign your deed of trust, you assign that land patent over to the to the uh, lender. And you didn't know that, but you did. They become the assigned. <clears throat> so you, the land patent is not a way to get out of the paying the loan. But then, as a matter of well-settled American law and jurisprudence, when they securitized that and separated it from, or bifurcated it, is the term they use, and, and they separated the, the promissory note from the deed of trust and or the uh, mortgage back east, <clears throat> that you became the assigned again. It reverted back to you because they abandoned it. And there's case law on it was an Indian nation that abandoned their, their land patent. So you can abandon a land patent that reverts back to the one in front of, of them. But the Indians it reverted back to the federal government that issued it to begin with. <clears throat> so now you have your land patent benefit back. So you should get you should get the land patent. That's another thing you need to do is get the original land patent, a copy of it, from the Bureau of Land Management and work work on the website, on Tad's website, I'm going to give him the name and phone number of the guy in Washington, D.C. that works with people like us. And he's very handy, and he'll he'll work with you, and he'll send you a certified copy of the land patent that transferred the sovereign, allodial, land ownership, rights, title, interest, estate, use, and control, everything that the federal government had after the International Treaty of Guadalupe, Hidalgo, and his protocol of Curry General. They have the sovereign loyal title, and that gets transferred in the form of a quit claim deed. The case law says it was a quit claim. Quit claim says you have everything I had. So now you have the sovereign loyal land ownership, rights, title, interest, estate, use of control. And now where does the county or the city come off telling you that you've got to put a new roof on your house or paint your house or get rid of that tumbleweed or anything on your land? <clears throat> in Northern California, <clears throat> they're putting meters on people's wells. Well, wait a minute. That's my well. I own to the center of the earth. That's my water. And and so that's a, that can be used against them, but I don't call people and say, well, I can do it to help them. There was a, uh, <clears throat> on the radio, there was, there was some wine uh, program where they interviewed people that have vineyards and stuff. And there was a guy up in Northern California that had a, had a, a winery, and he had people that wanted to donate their time just to learn learn the ropes, and and so he let them do that. Well, then somebody went and reported them, and the government came out and 
fined him a, a lot of money for bypassing all these laws and stuff. Wait a minute. This is, I have all the sovereign law deal title here. Where do you have any right to come in and tell me what I have to do on my land? I've been beating code enforcement now for a long time in the courtroom. In the courtroom, I beat them. And I help people do that, too, because of the arguments that I'm, I'm telling you right now. You see, in, the, in, the, in California, we have 720 Spanish and Mexican land grants. There are 20 massive Spanish land grants and 700 smaller Mexican land grants. And the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo said we had to recognize them. And the Americans said, why should we do that? We just beat you. Well, then the Mexicans wouldn't sign it. So they negotiated the Protocol of Puerto Rico, which enforced Article 10, where the American government was supposed to recognize them, and also said you're going to recognize it with the United States Land Patent, because that was the highest form of ownership transfer there is, a quick claim. And even though the federal government didn't have any interest, it just said we never will have any interest. So when when uh, the federal government went into all these western states to do what was going on the Congressional Township Survey, um, they were instructed to stay out of the ranchos because they were like nations unto themselves. And I have I have a friend that was a, a surveyor, and he was he told me they were instructed to stay out, don't go in to chase your dog, don't go in the rancho, stay out. And so that's pretty powerful now. And in, in the in the um, in, in San Bernardino Valley in in Southern California, Colonel Henry Washington was the uh, was a colonel in the Mormon battalion. The, the Mormons have bought Rancho San Bernardino, but it hasn't been confirmed yet. So he went up on Mount San Bernardino, and they call it Washington Peak now, named after Colonel Washington. And he did the baseline. If you, if you drive across America, you will see a baseline road all over America. Well, that's tied to the Congressional Township Survey. It's the baseline of the whole survey. Everything goes back to that baseline, to an initial point on a very tall mountain somewhere nearby. And so he surveyed all of Rancho San Bernardino by mistake. And then in 18, he started that in 1851. In 1858, Rancho San Bernardino was confirmed, and the federal government came back and removed their survey. Now, that was an expensive survey going in and an expensive survey going out, but it's proof that the federal government had no business being in that ranch. Well, if the federal government had no business being in there, where does the state, city, and county get any authority? They don't. They don't have any. They only have authority on their own land. Now, if you're going to use bank money to build your house, the bank says, we don't want you building a tar paper shanty with our money. We, we demand that you go get plan checks and get inspections and get a certificate of occupancy, and then we'll fund it. And so you have decided to bring those local governments in on your lands for the benefit that you need. As soon as they give you a certificate of occupancy and you get your utilities hooked up, you can tell them to take a hike. You, you, well, I don't need you anymore. I used you, and I don't need you anymore. I have the sovereign lodial title now. 
because that contract is finished. There's no more inspections needed here. Hey, Bob. So now I want to, before we go into questions, I want to read a case that just came to me that is pretty awesome. It's only two weeks old. And, uh, yeah, I've got to, got to turn a light on here. It's getting dark. Uh-huh. Where I am. Um, it's a court of appeals case. Now, this is kind of like proof that you can lose at the lower level and still win. Now, here's a fact. There are some, this shows, what I'm going to tell you now shows you that justice is for sale in America. I hate to say that. But it is. When somebody wins at the United States Supreme Court on a four to five decision in their favor, they have lost and they have lost and they have lost all the way up to all the courts of appeals. And when they got to the United States Supreme Court, they had four justices rule against them. But five turned the whole thing around and said, no, 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 he was he was right. From the beginning, from day one, he was right. And so he had to afford to take it all that way. Well, here's where somebody... Here's where somebody uh, won as an appellate court here. Um, This is the fourth district court of appeals in Florida. And it says judgment reversed for a borrower. This was against... uh, USBC, so it goes down in flames. Uh, some guy named Junior A. Harris, appellant versus HSBC Bank, USA National Association as trustee for NAAC mortgage pass-through certificate. Right there, that says that it was securitized. Or it was sold. Uh, Appellee September 9, 2015, that's two weeks ago. This is very fresh. It says this case is important for many reasons. It is short. While while that seems inconsequential, it seems highly significant to me that the Fourth District Court of Appeals would reverse the trial judge and direct entry of judgment for the borrower based upon application of Simple laws and rules that I have been advocating for eight years. Now, this is Neil Neil Garfield. If you ever you want to get on the internet and look for whatever he says, he is always always very good. Number two, it does not remand for a new trial or further proceedings. It directs that judgment be entered for the borrower. End of story. The next number three is called standing. If the foreclosing party lacks standing. By the way, the original lender or so-called lender doesn't foreclose on you. It's the the one that's uh, servicing the loan that forecloses on you. You don't have a contract with them. And then he has a trustee that actually does the foreclosure for the loan servicer. Okay, if the foreclosing party lacks standing, it doesn't matter how many payments were allegedly missed. That's what I started to conference call on, doesn't make any difference what you did or didn't do. A party who has no injury or interest in the subject matter cannot bring the claim. Number four, the assignment and the note endorsement was after the suit was filed. In other words, they they didn't have all the ducks in a row when they filed the suit. Hence, at the time of the filing, 
And that's why you need the securitization law. And we don't do that, but we can give you names of people that do that. That's a, that's a whole field in itself. At the time of the filing of the foreclosure lawsuit, there could be no standing, and therefore the lawsuit should have been dismissed. It is for that reason that the Fourth District Court of Appeals directs judgment for the borrower. Now, that means the borrower gets a free house. Now, of course, they'll sometimes they'll accuse somebody, are you trying to get a free house? Well, the answer to that is somebody's going to get a free house. Either the lender that didn't have a, they didn't loan me anything is going to get a free house, or maybe I'll get a free house. I'm the guy that's lived here for 40 years, and I have all my memories, sir. I don't want a court judgment. I want my house. And I might want a court judgment, too, but I don't want it to settle for money. I want the house back. Number five, the burden of proof is on the bank, not the borrower. In order to sustain a complaint at trial, the burden of proof is on the alleged creditor to prove his standing. Actually, they're not the creditor. You're the creditor because you loan them the money to loan you back. And there's case law on that. <clears throat> and that means that discovery demands routinely rejected by judges can be enforced. You know, there's judges, there's thousands of judges and hundreds of thousands of cases that have been decided wrong. And they can be, they can be opened up, and I know how to do that, too. Um, I can open up a dead and buried case very old. On newly discovered evidence, we got a lot of newly discovered evidence. Number six, the alleged endorsement was undated. This happens all the time, by the way. The court found that an undated endorsement cannot prove standing. The witness at trial must testify that he or she knows everything relevant about the endorsement. Who did it, when, and why? Robo-witnesses don't have that information because the bank won't them have it. If they if they did have that information, they would either be required to reveal that there was no underlying transaction or perjure themselves. And they do that too. <clears throat> Evidence. Oh, excuse me. Number seven. The court completely accepts the fact that the banks are backdating documents. And it says backdating an assignment does nothing to help the bank. In other words, lying about it doesn't cure the bank's case. Number eight, evidence. The witness testified that he knew nothing other than what he could see on the face of the assignment. And as I have said for eight years, it is pure hearsay. Simply reading a document into the record doesn't mean that the recitals of the document are true. The fact that it is a document doesn't mean that it is a business record. And the fact that it is a business record doesn't mean it is a valid exception to the hearsay rule. The judges by the thousands ruled in millions of cases that such proffer was admissible evidence. They were and remain wrong for doing so. If the witnesses cannot testify from personal knowledge about the matters asserted in a document, then neither the witness nor the document can be admitted into evidence. The question is not whether the witness correctly read aloud what was in the document, probably backdated and forged, in parentheses. The question is whether the information on the document is reliable and trustworthy and true. The document could have the appearance of reliability and trustworthiness, but the recitals in the document might not be true. 
And then in bold and underline, it says the homeowner cannot cross-examine a document. And a homeowner cannot cross-examine a witness about the accuracy of the matters asserted in the document if the witness knows nothing except what is written on the document. Let's go on here. Here, here is the court speaking now. September 9, 2015, appeal from the circuit court for the 17th Judicial Circuit. And it lists the, the people, all the judges and people who were arguing. Then it says, the borrower appeals from a final judgment of foreclosure entered for the bank after trial. Now, how many millions of people have experienced that? Unlawfully, I might add. The borrower agrees that the bank failed to prove, excuse me, the borrower argues that the bank failed to prove it had standing when it filed the action. We agree and reverse for entry of judgment for the borrower. Isn't that beautiful? The bank's original complaint attached a copy of a note payable to another entity. The note did not contain an endorsement. The bank later filed a second amended complaint. Attached were copies of the notes. Copy, by the way, doesn't mean anything. And an, an assignment of the note. The note now contains an endorsement to the bank. However, the endorsement was undated. The assignment purported to transfer the note to the bank on an effective date before the bank filed the original complaint. In other words, it wasn't a date. It was called the effective date. In the courtroom, it's called Mark Fotonics, now for them. Uh, however, the assignment was executed after the bank filed the original complaint. Now, I read a lot of cases on this. is very, very common. They get ahead of themselves. They're so greedy. They, get, they, they, they do things, and then they, they try to clean it up later. The borrower answered and raised lack of standing as an affirmative defense. The borrower argued that the endorsement was undated and, un, and, the, and the assignment was executed after the bank filed its original complaint. At trial, now we're going into the courtroom, the bank introduced into evidence the original note and assignment. Now that's pretty rare, but apparently they have the original. On the factual issue of whether, now that's what this says here, but it, it, it might not be because it was secured because it went into that Remy Trust. I'm just throwing in some extra observations here. On the factual issue of whether the note was assigned to the bank before or after the bank filed the original complaint, the bank's witness possessed no knowledge or information other than what the assignment's face reflected. After the close of all evidence, the trial court entered a final judgment of foreclosure for the banks. See, I hate to say this, but judges, a lot of judges have their retirement invested in mortgage-backed foreclosures. They want you to pay your bill. They have a, It's a conflict of interest. And so that's one of the reasons that the, the banks, the judges went with, with uh, for the banks. This appeal follows. Our review is de novo. See Lloyd versus Bank of Gibson case file. We reviewed the sufficiency of the evidence to prove standing and bring a foreclosure action de novo. We agree with the borrower that the bank failed to prove it had standing when it filed the action. We reached this 
conclusion for three reasons. Not just one, but three. First, the notes endorsement to the bank was undated. See, now you can go back and, and, and have a and securitization audit. will probably show all these things. <laughs> um, it was undated, and that's against Matthews versus Federal. I'll give the case there. The note introduced at trial did not establish standing when the suit was commenced. The blank endorsement was also undated. Second, the assignment was backdated after the bank filed the action. Here's several different things you see that they've done after they filed for foreclosure. Nor does the backdated assignment standing alone establish standing. Allowing assignments to be retroactively effective would be inimical to the requirements of pre-suit ownership for standing to foreclose cases. Third, on the factual issue of whether the note was assigned to the bank before or after the bank filed the original complaint, the bank's witness possessed no knowledge or information other than the assignment face reflected. So you want, when you get the guy on the stand, you want to ask him about, do you have personal knowledge? If they don't have personal knowledge, it's all hearsay. Okay, uh, the witness testified that he did not have any information other than the document itself to verify when the assignment took place. Based on the foregoing, we reverse and remand for entry of judgment for the borrower. And then it says reverse and remanded. And there were uh, two other judges concurred with the, with the uh, one that wrote the, the judgment. So there you have it. Um, you can win. You don't always win the first round. It's kind of like the boxing. <laughs> so, Bob, are you ready to yeah, take questions? The guy doesn't win the first round. He's got to go all the way. Hey, Bob. Okay, I'm, I'm ready for questions. All righty. Okay, if you have questions for Bob, hit star 8 on your phone, and that will put you in the queue, and then we can uh, uh, unmute you and... You can ask your question. Hey, we got some somebody from Southern California, Bob. What's that? We have somebody from Southern California. Um, go ahead. Hello? Yes, go ahead. Um, hi, Bob. I was interested to hear about your saying sending the uh, office to pay, and I'd done that when you were teaching that before, and I sent my four offers. It didn't do any good. Um, they still took my house. I also rescinded their loan um, in 2011 and this year, and they still ignored that. Um, said I'm out, of, and the second one they said I'm out of time. Although when I filed a lawsuit uh, because they didn't um, go in for a declaratory judgment, they didn't file their own um, uh, action on my rescission letter they answered it. They didn't go for summary judgment or dismissal. They actually answered it with kind of some boilerplate question, uh, answers saying, um, we reserve the right to bring more information in. Um, and now it's set for trial. But only trial in front of a judge, but it is set for trial. Uh, can I bring, you know, at that, this time in my discovery and request for admissions, can I ask them about receiving these offers to pay and other things i mean is do i, yeah. I you know I, I don't have my house anymore but is there a chance to get the damages 
Yes. Now, you see, as soon as you said, I made the offer to pay and it didn't work, I wanted to interrupt you, but I didn't. I wanted to say it did work. You just didn't proceed with that default timely and properly. So it did work. All the things you have done is a setup. And mm -hmm. if, if they're not smart enough to see it, they might go all the way with it. And now you have your opportunity. This is a good thing right now. It's too bad you lost your house because you could have probably stayed in your house had you done some right things earlier because you did set them up for an offer to pay. I don't know if you did a, a, a qualified written request letter. I don't know if you did the Oh, retention. probably half a dozen of them. What's that? Half a dozen qualified written requests. Yeah. Okay. If you did all those three things, you have set up your win. So you now you're going to court. Now you, I'm not going to be so um, positive to say you're going to win at this level. You could live. You could win at the appellate court like this case I just read. You see, there's no well, time. Nobody I just can lost guarantee at the anything. appellate level. I just okay. I did file another. I filed a, another lawsuit before this. Before I did my re second rescission. And the courts threw it out and dismissed it without leave to amend. I filed for an appeal, and the appellate court said it's frivolous and uh, we're denying your appeal. I've just written a um, writ of mandate to the Supreme Court asking them to force the appellate judges and the circuit judge to sign their orders because not one of them are signed. They do that. They do. They, they, they're supposed to sign stuff. You can't appeal until they sign stuff. That's you right. That so we you, you need that wedding signature on, on a judgment to, to, uh, to appeal. I've suffered that myself. I, I can't make motions for a judge to sign the order for over a year before he finally did that. That was a Superior Court judge in Riverside, California. So, so but, yeah, they, they know how to play us. So, I have a so am I doing the right thing so far? And now I've just got to figure out what, how to set them up in discovery in the rescission. Because I can start my discovery now because we're set for trial. Well, good. Uh, you, could probably, now, you could probably use uh, this affidavit of, of material facts, but convert it into a request for admissions in discovery. And make them admit mm -hmm. to all these things. Admit that you got my four different offers to pay. Admit you got my qualified written request. Admit that you didn't respond properly within 60 days. You can have them admit all these things. And this will bring it all to the forefront so the judge can see what the, you know what you're doing and that they've messed up. Now, do the offers to pay, what I've been researching is an offer to pay and and... Also, you know, a few attorneys and, you know, that's give or take. They all have an opinion and not, you know, they all give a different opinion. So I'm cloaking it with that. An offer to pay cannot come with a um, uh, something attached to it. So you can't say, I offer to pay this if you, uh, in exchange for the original promissory note. You all, all well, you can say is, I offer to pay you. Well, let, let, let me uh, make a comment, though. If you have a really good attorney, you do not need any other enemies. They don't know. <laughs> yes, they, that's they right. Don't know, they don't know this argument. In fact, I'm helping a man right now that ha has been fighting court enforcement for 15 years. And he, he got my, uh, somebody stole one of my posted notices off of my place in San Bernardino. 
and gave it to this guy, and he found me, and now I'm helping him because the same guy that has been bothering him for 15 years, I beat five times in the in the court in the courtroom on my own no. home over code yeah. enforcement. Same thing that he's got. So uh, he yeah. showed uh, he he he's had attorneys, and this guy, by the way, that I beat five times, went to his attorney and said, oh, Schaefer's going to hurt this guy. He's going to hurt your client. Because what we did, we made an offer to pay for a $280,000 judgment from a Superior Court judge against this guy. And now they defaulted, which means we discharged that $280,000. And so my guy said to his attorney, how could Schaefer hurt me? You can't help me anymore. I'm, I'm going down in flames. He's my last hope. And the attorney didn't have an answer for that. I can't hurt him at all. There's nothing I could do that would hurt him. But I've already yeah. helped him discharge a $280,000 Superior Court judgment. And I've discharged a lot of Superior Court judgments with this offer of faith. They default. They just, there's no way they can answer because we say, what are you requiring of me to pay this? I want to get it cleared up. And we, we, we look really good like, hey, I'm, I'm just a good guy. I want to get this taken care of. But I need to know what are you requiring. I don't want to know what you'll accept because, like one judge, he said the court orders. I mean, this this thing looks serious. The court orders that the defendant may pay in federal reserve notes. May is permissive. It's not a requirement. So another that showed. In fact, one other judge he said he called this a problem. He he in fact he it was on my own case. Uh, he said he was going to, he, he found me guilty on a criminal thing, and I reversed him in his own appellate court. But he he said, uh, if I'm, I'm going to say that fine, because I know you're, they know me over there. I know you probably have some appealable issues, and if it ever comes back on appeal where you really owe the money, uh, I'm going to be over in family law court. Your dollar cent a mill, that's what, that's what this argument is, will be somebody else's problem. It's a problem. They know it's a problem. You have to, they, they put people in jail for failure to pay, and you haven't been able to pay for anything since 1965. The only way you can pay for anything is with silver or gold coins or something that's that par, but they took that away from us with the Coins Act of 1965. Nothing is that par. In fact, there were people that were fighting the IRS and said, well, I never got any dollars of silver when I got, when I got paid for my job. And the uh, the IRS came back and said, well, but what you got with silver certificates may are a pile with dollars, so you lose. Well, guess what? They don't have that argument anymore, do they? It's 30 yeah. to 1. 30 to 1. So you're in good, you're in good shape, um, but you probably should hit them with um, a lot of uh, requests for admissions, admitting all the things that you've done right. Make them admit it. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, so that's where I'm kind of having trouble with. Everything that you thought didn't work, it didn't work at the time, but it worked. And now, mm. it's time to, now is the time to take advantage of all that. Even so, though I've got a res judicata issue on one because my first ever case with an attorney um, was dismissed with prejudice, and they keep bringing in that I, I have no standing to do anything because everything I do is barred by res judicata. Well, you can overcome res judicata and collateral estoppel with newly discovered evidence. 
well, that's what everyone, people keep saying that, but no one will explain to me how, properly how to do it. And I've tried to research and I can't seem to get that. So is that something I can, that one simple thing to overcome that, is that something I can ask for your uh, help on? And, and it, it, so, you let, know. Me, let me make it very simple. It's called the motion to reconsider for newly discovered evidence. That was shared with me by a guy that should not share with me that information. It was a California Supreme Court clerk when 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 I was losing really bad, and he felt sorry for me, and he he shared with me how I could revive a dead and buried case. It was dead. The remittiture was issued. The remittiture is a death certificate of a case. Mm-hmm. And and so he shared with me, well, you make a motion to reconsider but not just a motion to reconsider. It's got to be for newly discovered <laughs> evidence. Now he Can said, they turn you he, down on that? This is what he also said. He says, they will deny that. Be ready for that. He says, but that denial is appealable. Now your appeal is open again. And I did okay. that, and it worked. Hey, Bob. Don't get okay. Bob. Great. Yes. Hold on, ma'am. Are you are you when you were doing the offer to pay and all this? Were you working with uh, Bob and or John Gorla at the time? Uh, no, it was going. It was uh, doing something that you'd um, you were working at the time with um, his advocates at the time, and uh, you would do doing some seminars. And I, you know, I'd gotten all your information on uh, offers to pay from one of the seminars. Okay. That okay. Well, Bob is no longer associated with uh, his. Yeah, advocate. I know. I, I know never have been. Yeah. But so what I what I mean is um, that um, Bob, through John Gorla, offers coaching on this matter, and uh, they can help write, uh, create the documents for you. Or, or uh, how do you call it, Bob? Do you create documents, or how do you describe that of what you do? Well, we work as legal researchers and legal secretaries and as next friends. And um, what we, we we work under her direction. In other words, like like LegalZoom, you know, they say, well, we we work under your specific direction. In other words, it's, it's, a, it's a way of addressing it. But, yeah, we can create the document. I, we create the document. I do the research. John does, does the documents. And we... We tell people this is what we would file if we had your problem. Now, when you yes. sign that, when you sign that document and file it, it's your document. We're not going to come into court with you. Mm-hmm. No. But we but we produce documents that the people's best best hope and they and they have wins. If, if mm-hmm. they, they, there's just you know, the offer to pay has worked many many times. It, it, one this is an attorney. In uh, San Bernardino, that, that did not get paid fifty-eight thousand dollars in attorney's fees to steal a lady's house, and uh, he he got a judgment for fifty-eight thousand dollars. He put a lien on her business. He got a sale date, and at that very late date, somebody said, "You need to see Bob." And I unwound the whole thing with an offer to pay to the judge. You make the offer to pay to the judge with a copy going to the opposition. It's between you and the judge. The judge issued the the judgment. You see, both the Coinage Act of April 2, 1792, which deals with federal, the, the, the definition of a dollar, 
in California, the uh, California uh, California uh, Financial Code, excuse me, Government Code 6850 says the money of accounts of the state of California and all court proceedings. I tell people don't bother until you get a court proceeding because right there it says and all court proceedings. So yes, we want a court proceeding. You don't even. I tell people I wouldn't even walk in the courtroom and be embarrassed in front of forty other people. Bring me the judgment. I'll get rid of the judgment. Okay, now Bob. We have a court proceeding. Bob. Yes. Uh, hang on. So. Basically, what I'm saying is you can get coaching from uh, Bob and John, and if you uh, would like some help with that, uh, you can uh, go to the website, youhavetheright.com, look for the uh, banner ad that says uh, Land Patents Coaching with Bob and John Gorler, or you can contact me directly, mm-hmm. and I can set you up with a phone call, and we can discuss it. Yeah, I, um, I'd like to get a phone call first, um, you know, so other okay. people can put their calls through um, because I have to decide whether to go for this bankruptcy rehearing on uh, Tuesday. Um, but if I can have a phone call, I, I okay. definitely would like the help with the rescission case. I, that I, I know I would like that. But I why need to have a plan quickly. Why don't you email me? Are you, are you prepared to okay. write this down? Yes. Kish, K-I-S-H. K-I-S-H. At, at mailhouse.com. Mailhouse.com. Okay. And, uh, yeah, I can just give me your phone number, your name and all that, and then uh, we can certainly arrange a call. Okay, great. And then I, I definitely will go for the coaching on the putting in the discovery for the rescission and for overturning that res judicata because I really need to do that badly. Okay. You know, I, uh, Tad, I want to say a statement here. Okay. You know, uh, we all have, we have to be paid. And uh, it's mm-hmm. only fair that people get paid for their 36 years of work. If I would have known somebody like me 36 years ago, I would still have a two-bedroom home on two acres of land, excuse me, three-bedroom home on two acres of land in the city of Ukiah, California, and I would have a five-story hotel on the corner of Main Street and Route 66 in downtown San Bernardino with Best Western Hotel spending me some money. But I didn't know what I know now, and I didn't know anybody that did. And I hired very expensive attorneys, and they said they were sorry, but they got paid a lot of money. So, you know, like, like I said earlier, it's too bad, but today you can't get people to work for free, and, and we're, we're well with them. No, nobody that I know of, nobody that I know of is unhappy with what they paid us for what result they've got. I mean, people have got two years. One guy, the one I told you earlier that said they're going to sell my house on Monday, he was there for two years after they sold his house with our help. And then he, the only reason he got eventually evicted is because he failed to take care of business one day. He, I don't know if he got busy or whatever, but he didn't He didn't do, do what we suggested. Well, so we can't take responsibility for that. But we, we keep people in houses for a long time. Well, I don't need you to keep me in the house. I just need you to get me to help me get yeah, some we, damages. We want, we, That's all wanna, I want. We want to try to get your house back and then maybe some money too. That would be great. I'd be very happy with that, either yeah. of those. 
All right, so send so me an email. I will be I will, absolutely. Okay. All right. Um anybody else have any questions? Hit star eight on your phone. Star eight for questions. Chirp chirp. Yeah, have any questions at star eight, otherwise we'll probably end the call. Okay. We got somebody else in Southern California. Ready for this, Bob? Yes. All right. It's me again, but nobody else came on. It's me again, (laughs) but nobody else came on, so it's a different question. In regards to forged documents um, and the case law in California, if the corporate assignment of deed bears a known and deposed robo-signer's signatures, uh, does that... Um, mean that the bank does not have the note and deed and trust, they have no standing, um, and if some of the um, notary signatures on the notices appear to be stamped, what does that mean? Those are all, they mound, they mound up, those are all issues to be brought forward at this time. Um, in, in fact, any one of those could be a major problem for them because there's a lot mm-hmm. of case law now coming down about robo-signers and, and <laughs> forged notaries. There'll be there'll be one notary stamp with eight different notaries. I have a, a guy I work with that is a um, um, handwriting, handwriting expert, court, court expert uh, witness. And uh, mm-hmm. in fact, I just got this is kind of interesting. I, I, I collect oaths of office, and I just got an oath of office where a judge uh, administered the oath to another judge, and his signature is nowhere near the signature on his own oath of office where he signed for his own oath of office. Somebody else signed one of those two documents, it's not his signature yet. It, the payment to be that judge. So there's just a lot of corruption, and we can prove it with with expert witnesses that uh, this this signature is a fraud. Is a stamped signature a considered a real signature in law? I'm sorry, my hearing is so bad. I didn't hear you. Is is a stamped signature? Let's say it's um uh, a judge's signature. And it, but if it's a clear stamp, not an actual handwritten one, is that considered a real signature? Well, we can use all frauds against them. Okay, because anybody, if, if somebody's got a stamp, anybody could stamp that. The janitor, the secretary, the clerk, they could have all be stamping that person's signature, correct? Yeah, in fact, they have notaries that didn't ever see anything. They notarized that they did see it. And, they, yes. and they, it's been documented that that notary was not even in the same state. Yes. There's all kinds of corruption that's coming out of the courthouses nowadays. So those, those anything like that can be uh, gone after the fact for a wrongful well, foreclosure. What I need you to do before we meet, or while you're just, unless you have an emergency, you do your 4W affidavit showing everything, all the evils that you know about. Because you're going to have, we're going to have, we can attach that 
to the documents that we create for you. Okay, that's easy. We we need to all the little nitpicking things that happen on the date, who, what, where, and when. That's okay. that's an that's an attachment. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Great. Right. Thank you. Okay, Oregon, go ahead. Hi, Bob. Hi, Bob. Hello. Two questions. Uh, why couldn't you have done anything to stop her house from being seized, number one? And number two, uh, I have a friend who's maybe three, four weeks out of the people servicing his deed, or, yeah, his deed, Mortgage, excuse me, his mortgage. Um, he's about three, four weeks out, maybe, of them for starting the foreclosure process uh, on him. And another friend of mine wants to sit down and see if they can't work out uh, an exchange together. Um, and they're just each concerned about the time frame. And one's feeling pressured, just listed it with a realtor, but not under a stringent contract. He can pull his his listing from her at any at any moment, he said. Um, okay, just a minute. He's really just only looking for himself, you know, to get out of it as close as he can, you know, with, with where he's at on the balance. Yeah, I'm going to need you to translate that for me because my hearing is that bad. It was a bad connection. I, I just didn't hear what he said. I heard him talking. Um, I didn't hear it very clearly either. I heard he say okay. I had a friend. You hear the first question. Did you hear the first question? I want to know why you couldn't do anything or, or why something wasn't done to prevent them from seizing this woman's house that uh, was trying to follow your your approach. A, okay, so. a bankruptcy will stop a seizure. That's the only thing that will automatically, without any extra work, stop stop a seizure. And yeah, wait, wait, wait a second, two. Bob. Hold on. I, I, I think, I think another reason is because uh, this woman probably was not working directly with you, and so you were not able to uh, identify errors or omissions or anything of that nature. So that may have contributed as well. Uh, I, I, I didn't hear him say that, that this was something that we we messed up on. No, 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 no. No, he wants to know why it was that your information or your approach did not stop this woman's house from being um, foreclosed on. And I'm going to suggest that one of the reasons is that perhaps she wasn't work di- working directly with you um, so that you could uh, review or overlook her process for mistakes. Yeah, that's probably it. Uh, there's a lot of people steal my material, and they say, well, it was my material. And, and yeah, you see, I, I can't fix anything if I don't know about it. And there's a lot of people know enough to get people into, into trouble. I'm a guy with a 36 years of experience. I, I don't know of anybody that's unhappy with me. And uh, who, who of anyone that you've been able to uh, work with your work with uh, on your approach has been redeemed for even the damages or their cost after being foreclosed on and the home being seized. 
Did you hear that? Did you hear that, Bob? No, I didn't. Okay. He's asking for a testimonial. Who has actually uh, been able to either save their home from foreclosure or get their home back or have actually collected any kind of uh, money for damages or recoupment? Well, that's a very fair question. The answer to that question is, of course, they're going so slow that we're still in the process. And and, uh, I don't know if I should be giving out people's names and addresses anyway, but uh, I I would have to ask them. But um, we don't have a big list of stuff like that. Uh, we just started, even though I've been doing land law for 36 years, it's mostly with land patents and code enforcement. I just now switched that into mortgage, mortgage foreclosures. But the land, we don't use the land patents much. It's just part of it. We mostly use stuff that we've learned in the last few years, not 36 years. So we're, we're, we're still in the process. We're in court. We're all over this place. Uh, and, and, uh, but nothing is finalized. You see, when the economy is bad, crime goes up, and the courts are busy taking care of criminal stuff. They have deadlines. They, they, they've got to deal with these. And so everybody gets put on the back burner. It takes forever. I remember even five years ago I was in court, and the judge looked at the calendar, and he said, this was in February. He said, well, normally we'd have you back in uh, April, but we're going to schedule your next hearing for September, and it looks like this is getting worse. And it is. This is not fast. If you want something fast, I don't know where to send you. Because nothing is fast in this in civil law. Nothing. How many people, uh, Tad, has he been able to... Uh, walk through the take through the process to secure the uh, the land patent, the allodial title, whereby these people, you know, already had a free and clear deed. They just like the idea of getting off tax roll and really being an owner and being able to, you know, do a few things on their land without having to uh, be squeezed for the cost of permits, etc. So, how many people okay. have you taken through the process whereby they have a land patent and the county or the state or whomever has left them? I get it. I get it. Okay, did you hear that, Bob? No, I didn't. Okay, now now he wants uh, uh, some testimonials on people that have you you have worked with on land patents that have been successful in uh, being able to repel um, code enforcement headaches and to being able to get off the tax rolls. Well, now I can I can do that in my land patent kit that we have. Though there's uh, there's two DVDs of two different uh, verbal talks, and then there's two CDs that have the same thing that people can put in their car and listen and learn as they drive around. Then there's one CD of nothing but testimonies. And the, the guys that helped me produce that, we stopped at 30. I think there were 30 or 35. I had another twice that many of, of people singing, singing our praises on how we helped them stop code enforcement. Now, we haven't started taking taking off the tax hold because, frankly, I, I haven't had that need for myself. I've lived in my house for 50, for me, 41 years, and my tax rate is really low, and and so I live in the mountains, and, and it's $450 a year, and I feel that the uh, county earns that with the snowplow. And so if I took my hand... 
my land off the which I eventually will just for the just for the principle of the matter, but then I will still donate four hundred and fifty because it's only fair that because they're they're paying money out for that snowplow. When there's snow coming out of the sky, that snow, that guy's out working day and night, and I really appreciate them taking care of my road. I live at 6,400 feet in the mountains, and uh, so that's the reason I haven't focused on that. But that's another that's a focus in the future. But right now I'm I'm keeping people out of jail, and I'm keeping people in their houses, and that's not that's not important to me right now. But it will be in the future. Okay, so we do have we do have a lot of testimonies on code enforcement where we've just completely got rid of code enforcement. Okay, so what's it cost me to work with you to end up with a land patent on my on my piece of land? Well, haven't we been uh, through this already? Bottom line. Bottom line. Wait, 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 wait. Haven't we been through this already? Uh, maybe, maybe so. Okay. So another question then, Tad, is. Um, Yes. What has he done? What What is he doing presently? Then, as he said, to keep people in their houses who are under attack uh, through the mortgage foreclosure process. What other than as he as I heard him just say, the best uh, the best the best hammer in a in a mortgage foreclosure process if they want to stop the action immediately is filing bankruptcy. Okay. okay, I think I understood that one. What are we doing now to keep people in the houses? Well, besides that, Chad, <laughs> what else is he doing that's that's getting people the kinds of time so they can make the decisions on, on how they're going to exit and so forth and so on? Maybe even some of them, Chad, and I've heard rumors. I haven't met any first thing firsthand, but I've heard of some people, you know, locking themselves in on the board with the paper uh, securely enough to make it worth the attorney's uh, while to offer them something for those house keys for those people to move out politely. Now, does he got any, you know, is, is any of that going on on his behalf with, with the efforts and, and approaches that he's perfected or working to perfect? Well, I, I, first of all, Bob, he's saying uh, he, he wants to know what efforts have you made to help people get keys, cash for keys, and I, I'd like to just interject and say that's not really part of his approach. It's not to get cash for keys to let the bank walk all, all over you with a near-free house. His approach is to make sure that you keep the house, you stay in it. Do you have anything else you want to add to that, Bob? Yeah, well, from what I'm gathering here with my bad hearing, what we we start out with a qualified written request and a, and a rescission of that written signature and an offer to pay. Those are three things to start out with. Now then we've just developed the affidavit of material facts that show 120 different things that we want them to know that we know about, which can be converted to a, a request for admissions with a very little effort, which can be converted to a, this is not a fact guy when they get on the stand. So when, and I'm using that in code enforcement too, and it's been stopping them completely. In other words, some of this works on code enforcement and, and as well as, as with banks. But uh, there's some, there's some attorneys that once they see our paperwork, they will bail out completely and will get a notice of appearance from a whole different firm. There's one attorney in San Diego that has done that twice. They showed up and then they backed out. They don't want to deal with it. All right, does that answer your question? 
Well, uh, in, a vague, in a vague manner, um, I like the way you, you know, pointed uh, my question, but uh, still, um, okay, keeping him in the house, but we haven't heard any talk of anybody who's ever, you know, got the deed reconveyed. You know, um, and I personally know of one. They fought, you know, maybe 12 years, and you know, each side had to put in the kitty uh, 1200 a month for a number of years, and then through the securitization of the audit, she was uh, able to uh, bend them over backwards, and she was so staunch with her, her efforts and her perseverance, they made her a settlement whereby she would keep this, this case would be sealed, no paperwork would be offered to the general public on, on the case at all, and she wasn't to talk about it, and they allowed her to reconvey a deed in her name. And she does possess it with a reconveyed uh, free and clear deed today. Now, but that was a 12-year process for her, and again, you know, she had to go through everything that the gamut uh, had there in there uh, for her to unwind and expose. And, and there's probably some intricate details that, of course, I don't have because I've never been on a, a first-come, uh, first-served basis with her, only uh, getting most of what I understand through her associate that worked with her doing a lot of her filing, et cetera. So that's, that's all, Todd. I, okay. I, I commend the whole process and any of the men and women out here you know, helping me to learn more of what I don't know. But, but okay. I, I, would like to, I would like to hear and hear it more promoted as just that. This is a learning process, and it does take years. And I haven't seen a caveat of attorneys in any one of these processes laid down yet, but it sure is nice when you hear uh, Bob, as he did share this court case out of the 4th uh, District of Florida, because I was just reading some court cases where they were saying just the opposite out of the 4th District, and these were also recent cases. So, and some other districts where they're where they're giving where they're giving all of the uh, the re- the power to the to the lenders, you know, just ad advertisement of of the truth, you know, it's completely fraud, and it just it baffles me that uh, they so profoundly uh, divert from the truth. But anyway, all right, well, listen, we got somebody else that's waiting in line to ask a question, so yeah, just one one thing I to me as 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 I'm listening to what I can hear, and I can't hear much, but I, my mind was wandering, and I I can think of three people who have been in their houses for more than two years without making payments because of what we've helped, or we, we've done to help them. In other words, so far it's been a big stall, and the court, the, the opposition cannot move ahead. They keep asking for, for um, continuances and for more time to respond, and these people have more than got their money's worth, even if it if it ever fails. Uh, but we haven't lost yet on, on a number of them. Okay, Chad. Here's here's one. Here's my last question. It's a point. It's a good question. Uh, I want to know of a process that that is that we can perfect to go against uh, the Bureau of Developmental Services. All these different groups, they're all they're in every municipality in every county in every city organization under Metro. They're out here stealing land through city code violations, one, and any other claim they can they can lay to process into a lien to stack that for as long as they can and then come in and just take possession like they've got an automatic foreclosure process whereby they avoid all uh, uh, judicial uh, due process in it at all. 
By the way, there's a lot of boarded-up properties in Multnomah County, number one. We're talking hundreds of boarded-up properties that the city and their hatchet group, the Bureau of Developmental Services, uh, has gone through and, and just taken and now control as assets sitting there. Yeah, Chad, two, two of these that have been in their house for more than two years are in Washington State. And uh, there's a third one in uh, Northern California. Okay, he's in Oregon. Oh, okay. Um, so what he's he's asking is he, he'd like to come up with some kind of a um, focused program that would stop this regulatory agency from stealing people's homes under the pretense of codes and regulations. Well, that's that's the land patent issue. That's not a, that's not a mortgage issue. But and land patents is where I, where I really shine. I mean, I'll, I'll pat myself on the back with with land patents because uh, I've, I've had so much success with that. But Tad, 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 the question, the better part of the question is, Tad, how do we? What's the approach that we can march into these offices with our filings? and reclaim these boarded-up properties. Like, okay, Bob, he wants to know how these owners can reclaim their boarded-up properties that have been stolen from them. Or any of us, any of us would-be investors who want to take the, you know, the risk and the work and the effort to, to, oppose, to approach this uh, juggernaut. It's a quiet title action to, 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 to uh, answer that question real fast. It's a quiet title action. Uh, showing showing the, the uh, that they were a holder of the uh, land patent, but they've got to claim the land patent. They first have to get the land patent, read the land patent, see that it was good to that homesteader, to his assigned forever. They were an assigned it's forever, even though it happened several years ago that they got boarded up and thrown out. It's still forever. Uh, I'm really uh, convinced that we can help those people. Okay, well, it's like this. Most of those people have lost interest. They're scared. They've got beat down. They're not the one. They're not people like you and I that are going to stand up and fight. Okay, so there are people like me out here that have got a consortium that we're putting together, and we want to reclaim some of these properties so we can put families back in these properties. So, okay, hey. Did we do you, that, Chad? Chad? Wait, 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 wait. Okay, okay. Why don't you contact me? We need to sign a quiet title. Why don't you contact me privately, because we're getting to the end of the show here, and it's getting kind of late. So uh, we'll, we'll get together and see what we can do to, to kind of put something together, all right? Sounds good, Tom. Thanks. All right. Hey, Chad, let me yeah. just throw something out here. If he can get a group of people together that are all suffering, maybe uh, I should go up and do a seminar for him. Well, what do you think? I think that'd be awesome. Okay. You know, we have to, I would figure no less than 10 for his time, and we could see what we could yeah, do. I, I, I travel all over the place. I've been clear to uh, Tomahawk, Wisconsin, and did a seminar there and helped a lot of people. And I, I've been to uh, the, the Columbia River to help people. Just, uh, five That's where ago. this is. Okay, hey, listen, we got we got two more questions that have come up on the board that we got to get to. So let's see. Uh, C.S. Pallone. Okay, go Hello, ahead. Dan. Yeah. Hey, this is Kurt. I want to ask you a question. Um, I, I, this is toward your guest. Has any of your uh, methods used um, 
uh, or challenged the new requirement of submit the the bank submitting an affidavit of the amount uh, owe and due, and challenged that because of the inaccuracies of their statements and accountings and uh, and what's your feedback on that? What do you say? Could you ask your question again, but speak louder yeah. and clearly? Okay. Uh, yeah, let me let me let me summarize. So, so, um, so slower, slower. I'm ready to think. I'm sorry, but I'm really bad hearing. Okay, let me let me be real slow. Have you heard of any challenges to the bank on their affidavits? For the amount, uh, the amount owe and due, uh, that's a requirement in Illinois that the bank has to provide that upon foreclosure. And have you had any of your successes in challenging that affidavit? Because what they're claiming is that statement has no inaccuracies and it is a, a complete picture of your your debt to them. And I'm sure in most mortgages, uh, servicing companies, it's difficult uh, to be very accurate with the changes of one servicer to the next servicer. There's no way that they can claim accuracy that can't be challenged by, you know, anyone who even has a common sense knowledge of, of questioning or, you know, um, uh, that's yeah. an easy one to answer. Or offer to pay. Ask for a, ask them for a verified accounting, which they will not do. So, and 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 I guess I'm I'm going to bring this up. This uh, I challenged uh, the bank on that, and it shut down the foreclosure mill. Yeah. Um, uh, attorney, and they had to bring in a new group. They had just said, "Hey, forget about it. We're we're just gonna we're we're just gonna dismiss it for now." And it it's been sitting here, kind of, you know, uh, let's just say over six years. So I mean, I'm just trying. Well, to... That's pretty good. Well, see, that's what the office pay does. We ask them for we ask them for some things that they that, that we should be able to uh, ask for. In other words, we ask them where where can we bring our legal tender cash. They don't You're want right. any cash. We ask them, where can we bring our legal tender cash to uh, to, um, to to pick up our original solitary note? Now, they right. don't want cash. They do not want cash. But that's what the legal tender law is forced on them. They have to take it. So when we offer, we, uh, we, we want to know where we can bring our legal tender cash so we can pick up our original promissory note. That's yes. one thing. And then we need to know what they're requiring us to bring uh, to, uh, to to get this cleared up, and uh, that's why they default on the offer pay. The offer pay is an awesome document. We we use that for credit cards, uh, school loans, uh, mortgages, IRS, you know, state tax board. It works everywhere because there are no dollars, and yet they send they send you a bill with a dollar sign. Well, how how do they respond to when you um, ask 
for to, to tender payment in uh, in cash? How, how is what is the typical response? No or well, they, they either don't respond at all, or they say we don't want uh, cash. But they don't answer the other things too. When we we ask them, what are you requiring me? No, it's a default. It's a it's a non-response response. So, so it's more of a. We, we, it, it's more on the private. It's more on the private contract side of the whole thing because you couldn't do that in front of a judge and stop anything. I think he would just. He would oh, probably no, I say, wouldn't, uh, I would not mind. I've done it before, judges. Really? I showed it. I showed a judge a handful of silver dollars, and I said, "You know, I don't think I don't know what you're going to do about this. You reduce these charges from misdemeanors to infractions, so that you deny me my trial by jury." Now the only thing you can do is charge me money, but yet there is no more dollars. And I pulled out, I pulled out, I used 21 silver dollars because the Seventh Amendment says when the amount in controversy is more than $20, so here's $21. And um, I said, it looks to me like California government 6850 only allows this court to charge in silver or gold coins, and I don't know what else you can charge me with. Percent right. to your law. Percent to your law. And he's he looked at those and he says, those are beautiful. I said, yeah, this is real money. And that's the judge that said, said uh, it's going to be somebody else's problem if I lose on appeal. And I took him into his own appellate department, and he was the presiding judge of the county, top guy, and three of his, three of his judges overruled him on my case. Wow. Twice. That's incredible. The county made uh, a motion to reconsider, and I lost my win on just that motion. So I gave the, the appellate department more information. I got my win back a second time. Are, so are it's, you, it's a major, major problem. Is, is your process uh, process ever challenging the the, the uh, title chain and um, any kind of uh, uh, no, cloud no, no. title issues like um, no, uh, I forgot his name, but he's promoting it a lot. Uh, I don't get into chain of title. Let me ask okay. you this question: There's some people that say you have to do a chain of title. It's called the the uh, land patent uh, sandwich, and you go, you go, and you go all the way back to land patent. You come forward, and you do all that. Why would you do that? Well, if you found a break in the chain of title, would you want anybody else to know about it? <laughs> no. No, you are the the owner of record right now. Even if there was a whole bunch of mistakes in the past, nobody else is claiming your land. Now, you claim the original land patent as it relates to your uh, legal description. Don't claim the whole land patent. People go to jail to do that. You found the title to all your neighbors. You claim it as it relates to your land. And, um, and then they, in other words, save yourself all that time, effort, and energy. Uh, don't go back and look at your chain of title. It's not important. It's not important. Now, but what if what if there's mistakes in the conveyances? And and it seems like a lot of the, you know, the the MERS created a lot of conveyance uh, uh, discrepancies and and mistakes and uh, improper. Okay, that, that, that's not the chain of title. That has to do with paperwork on the loan. So well, we take advantage, if, we take advantage of that. If it's recorded in the in the in the recorder's office, isn't that? No, you know, yeah, that's that's good. But that's, that has nothing to do with title. It has to do with with uh, security to the loan. That's a, that's a deed of trust or a mortgage. Okay. 
I got you. Well, thanks for answering my questions. Yeah. Okay, our final question for the evening, Massachusetts. You're next. Hey, Ted and uh, Bob. It's Vital again. Hey, on Vital. Uh, a question for you, Bob. On no. uh, the original 13 uh, colonies, how would you go uh, go about um, bringing your uh, land patent forward? I'm glad you asked. The 13 colonies have a different problem, and, and the, prob- the major problem is only half of the colonies. The colonies that were on the coast, they gave, uh, they gave all the land to the soldiers and the people. In other words, there was no land for the state. And um, the, the backcountry colonies, they had about half of their land that was not claimed or given to the soldiers and the farmers and stuff. And so in uh, 30, uh, 11 years later, when the United States government came into being in, 18, uh, in 1787 A.D., they asked those states to donate all their un, unsold land to the federal government. They didn't want to do it to start with because that was revenue for them, too. But then they finally did give it up for the, for the good of the whole. So... There's some of the 13 colonies that have United States land patents. Most most of them do not. And um, there's a problem with land patents, uh, especially on the coastal states, because during the War of 1812, when the British came and burned uh, Washington, D.C., they burned up a lot of records. And so you can claim that you are the sovereign loyal title owner and that nobody else has that and then see who make somebody else uh, try to overcome that. A claim goes a long ways. Some people tell me that they're getting the, the land patent. See, the land patent came from England. So there's, some people say you can get your land patent from Great Britain. I don't have a clue on how that's done. Yeah, I heard about some... uh, there was land grants, and uh, you have to go all the way back to the land grant. Uh, you could also do a uh, lattice patent, but uh, I'm not too familiar with that. Yeah. I think there's a lot to be said about making a claim and forcing the other people to overcome that claim. You know, you can okay. say, well, my family's owned this, this place for 120 years. And uh, 120 years ago, there was no there was no property tax. There was nobody, no code enforcement. There was nothing. I have the same title that they had. Which was with the sovereign allodial. Claim the sovereign allodial land ownership rights, title, interest, estate use, and control. The whole thing is yours. Now prove me wrong. Okay. That's but you what I would done do. One of those. I have not done one of those ever. That's what I would do if I had that problem. And, and see how it flies. Okay. I might, I might contact you and try it and see how it goes. Okay. Texas has another problem, mate. Eh? But they have their own land patents, their state land patents, and they have a land patent department, and it's also forever. So it's a little bit different. All right. Very good. Thank you. Good night, everyone. Good night. All right. Thank you very much. Okay, uh, Bob, we're going to end it. It's been a while. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. So, you guys, I, I, ne- I never get tired of those. Yeah, I can tell. <laughs> okay, hey, 
Everybody, thank you very much for joining. If you want coaching, if you need help, go to youhavetheright.com. On the right-hand side, look up the Land Patent Coaching uh, banner ad. Click on that. It will give you instructions. So, um, And uh, last week's call is archived in the member section. And sometime this week, this call will be too. And uh, it's 27 bucks a month. I've got all kinds of information in the member section, so go check it out. Okay, Bob, thank you very much. And thank you, everybody. Good night. Thank you, and good night. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.